If you're tuning into this before the end of February 2022, you're going to have the opportunity to learn more about these kinds of sales approaches and how to apply them in your process with our signature course, Blueprint to Book More, which is open for enrollment starting February 22nd. It's 10 hours of short lessons you can put into practice quickly and easily. Ultimately, you'll book more couples at higher prices using these proven approaches. Check out blueprinttobookmore.com or the show notes for details. We're offering free group coaching with a course for the first three months. Feeling a little stuck on how to get couples moving forward with the deal? If you're getting ghosted from the start, losing momentum in the middle, or feeling pushback at the end of the decision, tune into this week's episode. You'll discover six principles of influence you can tap into right away. How scarcity negatively and positively affects people during the decision-making process. Ways to use scarcity as a strategy without sounding salesy and how you can tap into micro-commitments to get couples to say yes more easily. Own Your Business is a podcast for event professionals who want to grow with proven approaches. I'm Sam Jacobson, a sales, pricing, and copywriting expert in the wedding industry. Throughout my career, I've booked hundreds of events for millions in revenue. I've also led teams in premium and luxury markets. Now I coach people like you with my company, ID Action Consulting. It's not easy to run a business, especially if it's a business of one, because we aren't born knowing everything. Like you, I had experts who showed me the way when I was starting out and when I was ready to level up. I hope this podcast gives you the confidence to own your business. I think many of you know that I absolutely love reading. I mean, I love learning in general, but I live on an island. There's only 5,000 people here. There's a little community college, but... It doesn't offer a lot. And over the last 20 years, for the most part, since I've been here on San Juan Island, the easiest way for me to get the information that I love so much is to read a book. In 2020, during the pandemic, I read 53 books, all of them nonfiction. I love books. Now, it wasn't always that way. Go back to high school long time ago for me. I'm 43, almost 44. So 25 years ago, I graduated high school without reading a single book all the way through. And I didn't just get by. I graduated fifth, sixth, seventh, something like that in my class. I mean, I was able to pick up what I needed to without actually reading very much. I kick myself now and I definitely share with my kids how important reading is. But back then, I just wanted to do what I needed to do to play baseball and basketball and soccer and hang out with my friends and do the fun things in life. And then college hit. What I had been able to do in high school, I was not able to do when I got to college. And I took four classes my first year and I flunked two of them. (laughs) It was awful. I I learned a very hard lesson that what I had done up until that point was not going to get me to where I wanted to go in the future. The teachers in high school let me get by, but the professors in college wasn't going to work with them. So I was put on academic probation and I needed to get my act together. And I did. I got a B average for the second semester and I moved on. That summer, a buddy of mine, Gwen, he asked me, what are you doing? Do you really want to be in school right now or do you want to take a break? And I was looking for any kind of excuse to get out of going back to school anymore. So I took him up on his offer to ride a bike through Europe for four months. I don't know where he came up with this crazy idea, but I loved it. And I remember 
I decided, you know what? This is what I need in my life right now. I need to take a break. I need to take a brain break, a break from all the pressure in life of doing what it was that I was supposed to be doing and really figure out my own way. So I filled out the paperwork, turned in my leave of absence and decided to save as much money as I could. Now, this is where I got my start at the Olive Garden, but that's for a different podcast episode. Gwen and I worked day and night, split shifts, six days a week, slinging unlimited pasta bowls and raspberry lemonades and all you can eat soup, salad and breadsticks. And we made good money at the time, enough to find a way to save up for a trip through Europe on bicycles. We bought bikes, we bought camping gear, and we researched the hell out of that trip. I mean, I remember sitting in his house. I was moving, I moved in with him. I lived with him at the time. And we'd sit in front of the fire on those long, dark Northwest evenings. And we were both read books, read about the history of the place that we were going to so that we would know what it was that we were getting into. And I fell in love with reading for the first time. Maybe it was because nobody told me that I had to do it, but I did it anyways. So fast forward a few months later, I'm no longer at the Olive Garden, but I'm burning off all those calories that I ate with those breadsticks that I'd snack on between shifts. And it was just me and Gwen. We were out on our bikes, no phones, no cameras, no internet connection. This was back in 1998. We just had our camping gear and each other's company. We'd phone our parents once a week. We immersed ourselves in the cities that we were in, but we spent a lot of time on the road. Now, I went over there with a little bit over $2,000 for four months. Yes, you heard that right. $2,000 for four months. And I actually had some of it stolen, so I didn't even get to use all that money. We lived cheap. We were in these tents, sleeping in farmer's fields, in the forest along the side of the road. Even when we stayed in Paris for two weeks, a week of it was in a youth hostel, but the other week was in a campground. I bet you didn't even know they had campgrounds in Paris. It's over in the Bois de Boulogne, pretty sketchy part of the town. But we read at night. That's what we did. We had our headlamps and we read and we journaled. And eventually I went back to college for my sophomore year after that leave of absence. And I fell in love with English and history so much that I changed my major from business leadership because I had wanted to be a business consultant even way back then. And I started reading and learning about writing and history. And I've been a voracious reader ever since. Now, about eight years later, I ended up working for a company doing wedding sales. I was at this resort. I'd moved from restaurants. I was no longer serving the food or managing the people who serve the food. And instead, I started selling weddings. A couple years into it, as many of you know, I realized that my luck and charisma was getting me about as far as I was in the wedding world as I had in college. I couldn't fake it anymore. It wasn't going to happen without some serious education and a mindset shift of what was going to get me there. So I sat down and I thought, what can I do to get better at selling the services that I'm selling? And I went to my go-to books. It sent me down the road to behavioral economics and the psychology of selling, of pricing, how people make decisions. And that was really the first book that I dived into was called How We Decide. It was all about the complex decisions and what it is that goes on in the human brain and how we make decisions irrationally. And I was hooked. Now, one of the big books that I read when I first got started learning about behavioral economics, behavioral sciences, the psychology of selling, whatever term you want to put to it, 
One of the early books that I read, and certainly the most impactful book that I read, was called Influence by Robert Cialdini. Now, if you have read this book, you know what I'm talking about. If you have not read it, make a note for yourself to go out and get a copy of it. Buy it at your local bookstore. Support the little one. And read it immediately or sooner. It is that good. Easily one of the top three books that I've read. Right up there with Seven Habits of Highly Effective People and How to Win Friends and Influence People. Now, this book was originally written to give consumers a playbook on how to defend themselves against marketers and salespeople. Cialdini was teaching how people make decisions and how irrational or easy it was for them to make the wrong decision. And so he wrote this whole book after doing all the research, and he came up with all of these different principles of influence that marketers and salespeople are using to get people to buy their stuff. And here's what happened. Those marketing and salespeople, they got wise. And they decided very quickly that instead of this being something that they had to put underneath and, and hope to bury, they realized they could just get themselves a copy of it. And it was a step-by-step on how to get consumers to buy what they were selling. And very quickly became one of the handbooks that marketing and sales professionals use on a daily basis. Now, in this book, Cialdini talks about six main principles of influence. I think he calls them weapons of influence. And here they are. Number one, reciprocity. And this is essentially that if you give somebody something, they feel obliged, in debt, obligated to give you something in return. When you give somebody something, they feel obligated to give you something in return. Another one, commitment and consistency. And this is something we're going to talk about here in just a few minutes. And commitment and consistency basically says that when you make a decision to move forward, you feel really good about that and you want to keep moving forward. It also says that you want to maintain consistency in the decisions that you're making or the values and beliefs that you have. You want your actions and behaviors to align with the values and beliefs that you have. So reciprocity and commitment and consistency. Another one is liking. Now, liking is just getting people to like you. And it can be in weird ways. It can be in very subtle, non-conscious ways, like our preference for people who share the same birthday as us or who have the same name or even the same first name that starts with that letter. We tend to like those kind of people better. People who look like us, people who have lived where we live. Similarity and liking, big principle of influence. Another one, a fourth one is called authority. And authority is that we tend to follow the direction advice, recommendations, suggestions of people who are in positions of authority. And that can be done as simply as just having somebody wear a uniform. I remember once being in a very crowded parking lot and we were going nowhere. I I don't remember if it was at the end of a basketball game or at an amusement park or something, but we were going nowhere. And so I got out of the car and I took my phone and I turned on the flashlight and I stood in the middle of the intersection. I basically put up my hand and I, I motioned for the people who were getting in our way to stop And then I motioned for the driver of the vehicle that I was in to come forward. And I was using my cell phone with the flashlight on it like I was a police officer directing traffic. Well, we quickly cleared the area and we were able to create and carve out a path for us to move forward. Why would anybody trust me? Because I had a flashlight, because I look like I belong there, because I look like I was a police officer directing traffic in a crowded parking lot. That's the power of authority. A fifth one is social proof. So social proof, very, very powerful. And this is basically where we look at what the group or others are doing, people who have gone before us, and they've succeeded or made it. 
And in doing so, we feel like, okay, we could follow them. It's safe. There's reduced risk. Other people have done it. We could do it too. The last one of the six that Shielding talks about in this book is called scarcity. And scarcity, which we'll talk about more here in a second, can be very, very powerful. But it can also cut both ways. Now, I want to dig into commitment and consistency here in a minute, but I'm going to start off with scarcity because scarcity is that double-edged sword. It cuts both ways. Or to mix metaphors, it could be a grenade that just blows up in your face. If you don't know how to use it, if you don't know how to hold it, if you don't know how it works very well, scarcity can be really, really challenging in your sales process. Now, scarcity can help by creating the feeling that something won't last. It's not there very long. It can go away. But that can backfire as being too hard to get or not worth trying to pursue. Things that are scarce, things that are rare, things that are hard to get tend to be more desirable, but they also require more work, more effort, sometimes more luck. Another thing about scarcity is that it can help create urgency. Time's running out, limited supply available, but it can also backfire because people feel pressure. And that couple who's getting married, they're already under a lot of pressure. So as a wedding professional, yes, you can create urgency, but is it going to work with somebody who's already feeling all that pressure? Scarcity can also help by creating and influencing people to take notice. Take notice of you. Because all of a sudden, they realize that there's not very much opportunity. But it also might make them feel like they're being sold to. When you say that something is scarce or rare or running out, yeah, they may pay more attention to it, but it also may feel like you're coming across as a salesperson and nobody likes to be sold to. How do we use scarcity? How might you use it? Here's some phrases that I know that wedding pros use all the time. I'm not saying you use them and I'm not saying that they're necessarily bad, although I think you'll find out that I don't find them as useful as others that you could use or hold different strategy, commitment and consistency. But here are some phrases of scarcity that might have been used by you or you might have heard from other people. Have you ever sent out a proposal and you put in the proposal that this offer or this proposal or the pricing or the contract availability runs out after three days, five days, seven days? Proposal runs out. Or here's another one. I see this, especially in the luxury space. Only two spots left. Only three dates available. Only one more week available for X, Y, or Z. Only one more Saturday open. Here's the third one. Someone else just inquired about that date. I could see this one being used ethically if that's actually a true statement, but don't lie. Don't make it up. Don't use that. That's an awful way to do things. If you are telling people that somebody has inquired, it better be real. But these three tactics, these phrases that you might use, these are playing on that scarcity effect. And they're all very effective. They will get people to move. They will get them to desire your product or service more. They will get them to pay more because of the scarcity principle. But don't they sound a little bit salesy? Imagine it didn't come from you or the person you learned them from, a friend or whatever, a mentor, a coach. Imagine you were going to buy a car. Oh, the dreaded car salesman. And that car salesman took you out on a test drive and then you got done and you're like, wow, that was great. Uh, thanks for the drive, Steve. And Steve says to you, 
Yeah, happy to do it. Just so you're aware, though, I've got another person coming in in 30 minutes, and he's going to be driving this car, too. I've only got one of them left. How would you feel? You'd feel like you were being painted into a corner. You'd feel like you were being pressured. You'd feel like you were being sold to. And in many ways, that's how your clients feel when you talk about the proposal is only valid for this number of hours or days. You only got one or two spots left. Or someone else just inquired about that date. What that does is that creates this effect called reactance. And reactance is this defense mechanism that triggers in our brain when we feel like somebody is taking away the options that we have for the freedoms for us to choose. Or they're trying to get us to do something that we aren't sure if we want to do. And so this reactance is a very powerful feeling that we have, and we don't like it. Our brains are wired to fight against it. And so we put up a a defense mechanism. This is the fight or flight. There's not a lot of freeze in it. Fight or flight. So you get angry or you run away. And you don't want your couples to do that when you're trying to guide them through the buying experience. It can also create avoidance. Avoidance of moving forward, avoidance of seeking out more information, it causes there to be a pushback. So if you're going to use these tactics for scarcity, again, because it goes both ways, what I would recommend doing is looking at the demand side of scarcity rather than the supply side of scarcity. All right. So channel your inner macro econ if you ever took a class. And if you haven't, I'm sure you know about supply and demand. And these are really two competing forces that will help drive decision making. And when I talk about the demand side of scarcity, what I mean is how popular something is. It's so popular that other people might get it before you. It's so popular that other people might get it before you. And the supply side of scarcity is that there's a limited number of resources in inventory for people to get. So the demand side, I feel, is a little bit more positive. And and frankly, it plays on another one of those big principles of influence that Shieldini talks about called social proof, which is very powerful and it's largely positive. So if you focus on the popularity of your services rather than the limited supply of your services, I think you're going to see a more positive response with your couples. It's kind of like the difference between creating FOMO, fear of missing out, and time's running out. When you experience FOMO, you see that huge increase in desire. You want it because other people have it. But when time's running out, sometimes you feel pressured in a negative way. All right, let's go into the second principle here. So if we're not going to use scarcity, or if we're going to use it only in certain situations, what else can we use? Well, one I want to talk about today is positive and it's commitment and consistency. Now, One of the things that we do with commitment and consistency is we break it down into micro commitments. And what we want to do with micro commitments is we want to combat status quo bias. So status quo bias is this general feeling that human beings have that we'd like to stay where we're at without taking a risk of moving because where we're at is perfectly comfortable. It's safe. It's working well enough. We're not in harm's way. Things aren't awful. They may not be great, but they're not awful. Status quo bias is what keeps us in dead-end relationships, or living in a house or apartment that we don't really love, but meh, it's not worth moving. We're driving the same car year after year, even though we're kind of bothered by a certain number of things that happen with it. 
Status quo bias is huge and it's hard to get people to move. So what we want to do when we're combating status quo bias, when we're trying to get couples to create momentum in the deal that we have working with them is that we want to make it easy for them to make the next move. Now you could use scarcity, but again, that could backfire. And so what I'd recommend is that you instead focus on these micro commitments to get deal momentum going. And the key is to make the couple's next move easy. Think about what couples are going through when they're choosing a vendor, whatever it is you do, planner, photographer, videographer, stationary, floral, whatever. I don't care. It doesn't matter. When they want to choose your services, first of all, they have to want to do it. They have to get up the interest and energy to even start the process. Then they got to ask a friend or go online or read a magazine or something to get inspired, to get names. Or they just show up on Google. Whatever it is they do, they have to do some research. Then they have to find one that interests them. Then they have to reach out, fill out a form. Could be a long form. Then there has to be correspondence. They have to reply to emails. Eventually, they're going to get the information they want. Sometimes they have to get on a phone call to get it. Then they review those services. Then they have to talk it over with their sweetie and maybe other decision makers on how much money they actually do want to spend on this. Then they have to collectively agree, not just one person, but many people on what it is that they really, really want to do. Then they got to get a contract and read through all that legalese, maybe even hire an attorney. And then they have to move money around and be willing to part with their payment to make that deposit. Now, these are just the big steps that they have to go through. Within these big steps, there are many, many, many dozens of smaller steps of little things that need to be done. And this is just with your vendor category. They could be choosing 15, 20, 30 different vendors and doing this over and over and over again. And this is on top of their full-time job, of their friends and family and social circle that they're doing, all their other hobbies and activities, interests, vacations that they're going on. So in addition to the status quo bias that we're fighting, we're also fighting something called ego depletion. And this is basically, there's only so many decisions that we can make. There's so much effort that we can put forth in choosing what it is that we want to do. And so we get decision fatigue. That's if we're lucky. Sometimes we get analysis paralysis where we become overwhelmed by the amount of choices that we have to make. And we just can't do it. And all of these are working against a couple that is interested in booking your service. So part of your success is going to come by keeping the move small. Keep them small. When someone inquires, just get them to send the inquiry form in. They're on your homepage. They move to your inquiry page. However they get there, don't put forth a massively long contact form. If you want more inquiries, if you are interested in more inquiries, that's the number one job for your website then. Make it easy. Reduce the resistance. Reduce the barrier. Lower the obstacles. Keep the contact form shorter. Once they fill out that contact form and they, you respond to their email, the next micro-commitment is just getting them to read your email. Do that. By making it a short email, 150, 200 words. Then if your goal is to get them on the phone, which is going to be the best way to convert the interest that they have, get them on the phone. How can you make that easier? Give them three options to pick from and make one at night, make one in the morning, make one at lunchtime, make it easy for them to pick the time of the day. Give them options. Oh yeah. Tuesday at noon. That's good for me. Then you have to get them to schedule a time. Make it easy by including a calendar scheduling link. Get Acuity or 
Calendly or whatever it is that you use, your CRM. Get them to schedule a time by making it easy with a link. Then get them to make the call. Ask them for their phone number. Send them a Zoom link. Make it easy to click. Send them a reminder. When you get on the phone with them, get them to warm up and start talking a little bit and sharing something. Get them to be receptive. Make it easy to have a conversation. Ask them questions that they're comfortable answering. Ask them questions that they know the answer to. And on and on and on. These are all little micro-commitments that you can get people to do by making it easier for them to move forward. Reduce the resistance, reduce the friction, reduce the obstacles that are getting in their way of moving forward. Why is this successful? Well, remember, inertia, it works two ways. Objects at rest tend to stay at rest. This is your couple that is not making any progress. They will tend to stay there until time runs out. Right? They're going to feel that. That's that scarcity that's going to move them forward. All of a sudden, picking a vendor becomes much more desirable when the deadline's approaching them. But objects that tend to be at rest will stay at rest. The other side of inertia, though, is that objects that are in motion tend to stay in motion. Once you get somebody going and moving forward in the direction of picking a vendor, they tend to continue going in that way. All you have to do is get the obstacles out of the way. It's kind of like curling, you know, that really weird sport that's in the Winter Olympics where people go through with brooms. It's like shuffleboard on ice. That's kind of what you want to do. You want to just smooth out the path for the puck that's moving forward. That's your job as a salesperson, not to be better at sales, but to make it easier for them to buy. And you do that with small ass. Make it easy to say yes. And once couples start to feel comfortable moving forward, you can kiss status quo goodbye. Sure, scarcity works some of the time, and if you do it well, but it could also blow up in your face and kill the deal before it gets going. My advice, keep it positive. Guide couples through the buying experience using micro-commitments. Boom. That's it for this episode on Own Your Business. If you've heard me on a stage or a workshop or someone else's podcast, you know I have a hard time keeping it short, but I know you're busy. So thanks for spending time with me today. You have a ton of options for guides when it comes to getting you to where you want to go. I hope you found someone you can continue to trust. If you have a friend who could use practical strategies to own their business, please share this episode with them. If you can't think of anyone in particular, we settle for a quick review on whatever podcast platform you listen through. 